This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. For the last six years, Maine legislators returning for the January session have been greeted at the State House by the Alliance for the Common Good. Their annual Unity Rally brings together a wide range of groups and individuals who want to make sure the issues that they're working on in the state are not forgotten. Today on Maine Currents, we'll bring you to this year's rally, which was held on January 3rd. Due to time limitations, we cannot bring you all of the speakers today, but a video of the entire rally is posted on the WERU Facebook page. Now we go to the rally, January 3rd, the MC was Jim Freeman. So our next speaker is gonna be Ed Spencer on the Juniper Ridge Landfill. And probably many of you don't even know what it is, but it's a, it's a dump in, in Old West Old Town that brings in construction and demolition debris, and they were just granted an expansion permit, um, and so we'll be having more out-of-state construction demolition debris coming into the state. So a round of applause for Ed Spencer. Well, hello, I'm, I'm uh, very pleased and honored to be standing here today with this Alliance for the Common Good. Uh, thanks to Jim and Lou and everybody else who's had a hand in organizing this and getting people here. And uh, I, th I, I think we should all look to uh, people like Steve Coughlin as our, you know, leaders of the future and the present. And uh, he's, he's been a great guy to get to know. And, uh, and I know there's, there's all kinds of people in Maine that feel the same way. Um, this Juniper Ridge landfill began as an attempt to keep a paper mill in Old Town, okay? The uh, paper mill had its own landfill. They said, they said 10 years before in the early 90s that if we have to, if we can't have our own landfill, we're going to have to move out of Old Town. Then in 2003, the, you know, the owners had changed and they said, if we have to keep this landfill, we're going to move out of Old Town. So the state came in, made a deal, uh, paid off Georgia Pacific, you know, who had just been bought by those cuddly Koch brothers we all know and fear. Um, so anyways, uh, the, the deal was done and the state became the owner, which is a good idea. I, I agree with uh, state ownership of, of waste facilities. Unfortunately, the process has been one that grants untold power to the garbage company, Casella, and gives very little power to the actual people of Maine to control it. And they, they are so well entrenched with their lobbyists, their money, that uh, it's very difficult to, uh, to oppose them. And they've more or less uh, captured the regulator, uh, which is the DEP and the state as owner. Um, so we're talking mostly about water here today, and this landfill, it's a highly engineered structure, actually, and the idea is to put the waste, pile the waste in such a way that the waste materials are separated from the surrounding lands, right, and waters. They have this liner system, and what they do is they collect the leachate. Think of leachate as dump juice. So it rains on un uncovered portions of the landfill 
it comes down, plus the waste is decaying, so there's all this liquid that comes down. Well, they collect it. Good. But what do they do with it? A trucker from West Old Town down to the former Old Town Mill, uh, and where it goes into the mill's wastewater treatment system, and where it is uh, aerated, uh, they check for pH, and they remove some uh, BODs, and uh, then they basically release it into the river. So it's kind of ironic that we're spending millions and millions of dollars to keep this material from getting into the, the uh, groundwater surrounding the landfill, but then we give it a ride down to the river and put it right in there. And the, uh, I actually met with uh, Dan Cousineers of the Penobscot Nation. He's their surface water guy. Had a great meeting with him yesterday afternoon. We went over some of these uh, tests they've done on the, the outfall, you know, where this material goes into the river. Well, there's some problems with that because they only, the leachate itself they test four times a year. The outfall is once a year. Now, the leachate, they test it for like 100 chemical compounds. The outfall, it's less than 10. So that doesn't seem right. Um, and, and we need to, to, you know, bring them more together in, in that way. Um, so that, that's something to, to work towards. And a better solution, a better place for the leachate to go, it would be to uh, their backup plan, which is take it to the Brewer uh, wastewater treatment system, which is a combined municipal, and it's very large because they used to put their uh, the Brewer uh, paper mill waste in there too. And at least there, there's more tertiary or secondary treatments. Uh, they pull sludge out of it. So all these uh, suspended solids that would tend to go in the solution into the river in Old Town would be contained in sludge, pulled out, and put back into the landfill. And as Steve says, you know, this is not sustainable uh, over the, the long, long term at all. Now, so, so that's something we can work on, and, and it, cost, it cost them a quarter million dollars per year, plus the trucking, to dispose of this at the Old Town Mill site. Um, maybe Brewer would be twice that amount of money, you know, and, and twice the trucking also. So there's a solution. Casella's always saying, oh, we recycle, we're green, we're wonderful. Put your damn money where your mouth is, Casella, you know? So the other way it threatens our groundwaters is, is from the, uh, the threats caused by climate change, right? We know, I've seen firsthand uh, the effects of a 20 inches of rain event in a 24-hour period just devastated the town my son and his family live in, in, in Lyons, Colorado. And that's coming. We don't know when, but it's coming. We're going to have increasingly larger, more intense storms, and it's just a, a fact. Well, one of the problems with when they plan to build this landfill, the DEP standard is that they need to build for a 25-year flood. Well, I say, wait a minute, you're going to have, in that 25-year period, you're very likely to have a 100-year flood. Well, the standards are the standards, so this is what we do. Now, the company They'll say, 
oh, our structures, our stormwater detention structures, can handle a 100-year flood. But when I press them on that, we find out the way they do it is they have a, an overflow spillway. So if they get that precipitation, that huge event, it's going to overflow their structures and go into the surrounding wetlands, which happen to be critical habitat for uh, endangered uh, Atlantic salmon. So, so that's a big problem, and it's, it's going to happen. Uh, probably the third way, this is the threat to the water system. And, and here, these, these under these groundwater systems, everything's interconnected. The same way the surface waters are all interconnected from tiny rivulets to, to giant rivers like the Penobscot, this, something similar is going on underneath the ground. It's just not as clear to us. So these liner systems, as well-engineered and robust as they are, they're not permanent. And Casella's experts have even testified under oath that all liners leak eventually. So what we're doing is we're piling this big bunch of poison on top of this liner system that we know is going to fail. But it's not, we can't really tell if it's failing yet, if it's starting to leak now, but it's for our grandchildren, you know, our great-grandchildren. And that's obviously not right. Um, so so that's, that's kind of a fact of life, um, that they are going to leak. Now, the, the existing landfill uh, has a single membrane, you know, a single liner, they call it. Well, now, when they're selling the expansion, they said, oh, this is going to have a double liner. Like, wait a minute. How come we weren't good enough for a double liner in the first place, you know? But now we're going to have a double liner. So what are we looking at for solutions? Um, I picture waste companies like Casella as a monster, okay? And they, uh, they work to uh, pile up money to pursue their, their profits and the way to stop them is to starve them. The good news is waste volumes are trending downward everywhere, okay? We thought, they thought that, you know, the, the Great Recession, 2008, 2009, that's why the waste volumes were down, but they're continuing to come down. That's good, that's good news, keep them coming down. There's all these uh, zero waste initiatives being practiced everywhere. I got to mention, there's a group I, I got to know during this process called PLAN, P-L-A-N, and that's, called, that's for the Post Landfill Action Network. And what they do, they're based at the uh, University of New Hampshire, and they bring students from schools all across the country to these events, these symposiums, and they get together and they talk about zero waste initiatives, indoctrinate these people, and then send them back out into their schools and their communities. And it's, it's, it's a great idea. It's having effects. You know, my little uh, uh, second grader, granddaughter, 
out in Colorado, they have a zero waste week where they all practice doing this. You know, so these things, it's coming, but it's, can it come fast enough? And the one, there's a couple of simple solutions, but very difficult to enact that could happen right here. And that is, let's have a common sense definition of what out-of-state waste is. You know, when, when this happened, there was two promises. There'll be no out-of-state waste, there'll be no municipal solid waste, which is like curbside trash. Both things are happening right now. And the out-of-state, they changed the definition. I'm not even going to repeat it because it's a bastardization of the English language. But it's basically whatever you want to bring in, if it's for stabilizing the landfill, or if it is brought to Maine and processed. Uh, and the other thing that needs definition is recycled materials. Okay? Now you think of recycled material, what are we doing it? We're pulling it out of the waste stream, we're recycling it, we're turning it into something else, right? But at our state-owned Juniper Ridge landfill every year, over 100,000 tons of materials, they describe it as fines for daily cover, right? This is classified as a recycled material, 100,000 tons. I mean, it's, it's unreal, but it's, sadly, it is, it is the reality. So you would think our legislators could, could uh, do something this simple, but I'm, I don't know, I'm a very optimistic person, but I'm not sure this can be accomplished uh, as with the current uh, uh, power structure in place here, um, but we're, we're gonna try anyhow. Um, the other thing is the, that the, the DEP, I mean, they've got some great employees. They really try hard, I think. But I think basically these major permits are granted for political purposes. And the DEP rules are kind of squishy enough, vague enough, a lot of them, so that they can argue either side of, to get their, their result. So I don't have... I'm all for, I mean, in fact, my feeling is, uh, you know, if uh, my feeling is the commissioner of the Department of Environmental Protection should be an elected, not an appointed office. Um, and the other, so DEP needs some pressure. The other thing that needs pressure is the state as owner. They're buried in the... Bureau of uh, General Services, BGS. They don't do a damn thing to try to influence Casella. It's like Casella has become the de facto main waste agency, which hasn't existed in the state for about a quarter century. And so they just don't do anything. Casella has this idea, oh, we're going to bring more curbside garbage from southern Maine, which violates our state waste hierarchy. And uh, the uh, BGS, the state is owner, just uh, holds our hand and says, here, use our letterhead, make it look official. Sure, we'll blow the hell out of the, uh, the statutes of the state of Maine. We don't care. You know, well, that's wrong. And they need, they need to get reminded of that. Yeah. Um, so I guess kind of in closing, uh, once again, I'm, I'm really glad to be here. I do look to the Penobscot Nation as, as leaders 
in this, what's good for them is good for the state as a whole. I mean, I'm not going to agree with, you know, 90% of the time, and, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm right with them shoulder to shoulder. Um, but I'd like to, to close with a, a quote from a, a great author, Dr. Seuss. And uh, who said at one point, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing gets better. Never. It's not. So thanks again for inviting me. Thanks, Ed. Our next speaker is going to be Cynthia Finney from the Maine Trade, Fair Trade Coalition, um, just talking about what's happening in her world, which also influences our world. Good morning, and thanks for coming out on this very cold day. The Maine Fair Trade Campaign is a coalition of labor, environmental, faith, and social justice groups working together for a fair trade and an economy that's sustainable and democratic. Currently, our focus is on the renegotiation of the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA. We were part, and many of you were part, of the very successful worldwide coalition that worked for many years that ended in the successful um, removal of the United States from the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. Thank you for anything you did toward that end. Um, but we knew then and we know now that that was not uh, the final effort in moving us to a fair trade direction and a fair trade economy. The North American Free Trade Agreement contains in it some of the things that would have gotten worse with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And there are people involved in the current negotiations who believe that parts of the Trans-Pacific Partnership should be incorporated into the new NAFTA. So our mission is to make sure that people understand what is in the agreement, that with all the array of issues that all of us are working on now, we don't lose track of this one, because this is the one that's being used increasingly not just to regulate trade, but to turn over the rules that govern the economy in the world to the will of corporations. Contained in these agreements is what's called Investor State Dispute Settlement Mechanisms, ISDS. You've probably heard about them in the news. These parts of these agreements grant special rights to corporations to sue governments, whether that be federal, state, or local governments, whose activities they feel violate their rights under the agreement. This can mean that if environmental legislation is passed, disallowing companies from doing certain things, that they will sue saying they are being discriminated against by not being allowed to profit in the way they want. And they can sue, their case will be heard privately by three, a tribunal of three attorneys. The decisions do not have to be based on precedent and they do not even have to tell us what their reasoning is for how they decided. That's what's contained in these agreements. That's what has gotten stronger and broader with each successive agreement. That's what we must not let happen with the North American Free Trade Agreement. 
Our current United States Trade Representative, Robert Lighthizer, is actually opposed to the ISDS. But from what I can tell, he's a bit of a lone horse in the administration in that, in that effort, so we don't know how long he'll stand fast in that position. It's also interesting in these negotiations that Canada has made several moves to try to force the U.S. to improve our labor standards. Because in this, the three countries that make up NAFTA, our labor standards actually drag down theirs. So that's another interesting twist in these particular negotiations. So we're working and we invite you in your work also to stand up with us um, to continue to push for a trade agreement that actually works for people, that actually protects the planet, um, and that is based on those kinds of goals and that kind of economy, and not just on the movement of capital around the world. You've heard a lot today about water, and so just as an example, I'll tell you that one of the things these agreements can have to do with water is that they can interfere with our legislature's right to either protect our water or should they decide to declare water a public good, they could be sued under some of these agreements for removing that from the private sector if a co corporation felt that that was discriminating against them from being able to bid on purchase, sale, development, what have you, of water. So, and those are decisions that our legislature will be making. So even though NAFTA is a national issue, it has a lot of bearing and needs to be understood by our elected state representatives as well as our county, local, municipal um, legislators. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. Today we're bringing you some of the speakers for, at the Alliance for the Common Goods Unity Rally held at the State House on January 3rd. Our next speaker is going to have a little different attack or a little different approach um, with, I, with, I feel, some shocking statistics about where our money goes from our utilities and how we heat and electrify our homes. Um, Hendrik uh, Ganinas has been working with me for years uh, as a uh, steering committee member on the East-West Corridor. He's worked tirelessly around mining issues and everything, and I'm really proud to be associated and friends with him. Hendrik? <laughs> Good morning. <clears throat> Good morning. Uh, I have a cold. Uh, I also have been working on this for two years, and I spent ten days putting something together, and it's in print, and there are enough copies for one for each of you. So if I can't, if I can't finish talking, you will have my message. I'm going to try to condense what I would have done. The title given to you is Menergy, Maine's Energy Plan for Self-Sufficiency. Listen carefully. There is none. Repeat, there is none. Two years ago, that guy, Eric and Jim, asked me to get involved in an energy bill. I said, I don't know anything about energy. And after I read all the stuff on that bill, I knew even less. All I had was questions. I took the questions to the committee the committee decided not to do what they were going to do based on my questions. That kind of blew me away. I got hooked. I have talked to lots of people over the last two years. And what I learned was there is no 
long-range policy for energy in Maine. What stands for it is almost entirely misconceived, barely competent, from a policy structure point of view, a hodgepodge, inadequately supported by sound data or substantial high-quality, multifaceted, and imaginative analytic support so badly needed for sound statewide policy. Those are strong words, and they are completely warranted. Um, I got involved in conversations. I talked to a lot of people who were knowledgeable about this area. Broad consensus was that it's terribly important we do it. No, there isn't any ongoing. And until the governor is replaced, there won't be any. And I said to myself, I can't let it end there. This is too important. So I dug and dug and dug. And one of the things I learned, which Jim just referenced, is that Maine, you, me, everybody in this room, not state government, we as individuals send $6 billion a year outside of the state, never to be seen again, to purchase gasoline, heating oil, and natural gas. That's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Because that money leaves this state, never recirculates, and makes us hugely culpable in the climate change issue. That's a big number, $6 billion a year. You extend that over the 40 years that it will take to shift us from a fossil fuel-based economy to one based on indigenous renewable resources, that's a quarter of a trillion dollars we're talking about. Do you think we could parlay that into a shift off fossil fuels to alternative indigenous sources of energy and hold harmless all of those who are going to be injured by that public policy change? Of course a quarter of a trillion dollars could do that. And you talked about being a finance person. If you, if you brought a bunch of financiers together and said, how could we make this transition from six billion a year going elsewhere to producing our own energy and hold harmless all the people who have all the stranded assets of oil delivery and gasoline stations, et cetera, et cetera, they'd say, well, let's put our minds to work at that problem. How could we do it? What would we have to borrow? How would we pay it back? How could we? It could be done. No question in my mind. Uh, rather than go into the, into the details, what we need is, is a, a, an energy transformation planning initiative on an unprecedented scale, uh, multi-decade in length, entailing deep economic and technological, I'm going to use the word, imagineering. Thank you, Disney. Actually, it was, it was uh, Alcoa that came up with that phrase, but we all know it now through Disney. That planning should be directed to taking Maine off fossil fuels, midwiving us onto indigenous alternatives, and serving not so much corporations, international at that, or individual consumers. Yes, we all are, but we're not the ones that are important. It's the commons that is important. The whole population, now and 40 years from now. And, don't forget, the environment, which is part of our commons, both now and in the future. 
that takes planning and conceptualization on a scale that this body up here is absolutely unequipped to handle. Not, be not because of the people who go there, but because the system is partly has to do with the culture of the legislature, but the system does not support them with that kind of expertise. You know, they have legal analysts that support them, but not a, a, a brain trust that could be put to work looking at these kinds of real large-scale problems. Uh, a couple of vignettes to enter. Um, uh, <laughs> one of the hearings last spring, what I did with all that knowledge I acquired was decided I'd be Johnny Appleseed, and I would go and testify last winter and spring to as many energy bills as I could from the perspective of a schema that I hammer together. It's, you know, it's probably not right in certain respects, but it's on a scale that says everything is related to everything else. And if we're going to talk about four decades, how's that going to relate to the purposes we have? How's that going to relate to who the stakeholders are? You know, bang, 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 bang. And on the, on the text that you will all get a copy of, there's a, a copy of the website where that's all laid out. You can find the, the image and the model. Um, but if we're going to do it on that scale, uh, and here was a guy from one of the power companies testifying looking for brownie points that they were going to pay for the new meters that had to be on houses that had solar panels. Even though he said energy demand for electricity, the demand curve for electricity has been flat for years. And I hear that and I think, wait a second, if we get off fossil fuels, the power is going to come to us through our electric wires because that's where solar and wind and, you know, that's, it's electricity we're going to be working on. It's not going to be flat. It's going to do this. They should be paying us. You all see the story in the paper a week ago where Germany is actually paying people to use power. They've got so much indigenous electricity coming from the sun. It's wild, you know. That's number one. Number two. I went to a, a presentation by the, by the co-director of the energy planning project that's being run out of the governor's energy office, which is a travesty. Um, and he actually got up and said, our job is not, I'm gonna quote this, not to choose winners and losers. Excuse me? I mean, if we're serious about sustainability, somebody's gotta make choices that says, we are gonna get off fossil fuels, and we're going to get, you got to make those choices. And the winner's loser's language is crazy. I mean, if we don't do anything, we're all losers. Okay. Um, the governor's energy bill, LD 1547, it's an abject failure. I hope his ears are burning. Yeah, it would actually limit Maine's energy goals to two things, reducing electric rates, and costs, and oh yes, air pollution. That's the only nod in the direction of the fact that the climate's going here, the air pollution. That's not what we're talking about, Governor. Anyway, I didn't critique the bill. I just rewrote, rewrote the policy and told the committee, this is what you should be doing. And they did not act on the bill. They held it over to this, this session, so I'm going to be back. Uh, well, I'm not going to be back. I'm, I, I worked for two, 10 days on putting together this stuff, but I was in Medford, Massachusetts. I went south for the winter. Um, 
because I'm too old to be dodging the snow piles under my eaves. Um, everybody needs to involve themselves in, in the energy issues. Um, I, it's it's mind-numbing. Uh, and, uh, you know, I wonder sometimes how long I can continue do, to do it, except you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound. I read the, uh, the, the, the document that the um, uh, main uh, public advocate uh, commissioned be written in response to Amira's request for a rate hike. And it is it's so busy looking back into the past in terms that are exclusively, di exclusively directed to, is Amira earning enough on its investment? Excuse me, you know, that's not the issue that the Commons wants to hear discussed. What we want to hear discussed is how can we do the best we possibly can for Maine and the world, nothing wrong with working for the world as well, by doing our part in what needs to happen. Uh, get yourself involved uh, in, in hearings of whatever kind, even if it's just saying what you think they ought to be doing. Uh, and stop doing what, what the committee calls the weeds of energy policy. Um, one of the finest compliments I got last, last spring was a committee member who came up to me and said, thank you. I said, for what? She said, for the different perspective you presented by talking about these things sort of at large. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, we spend so much of our time in the weeds of energy policy you asked us to look at the hills, the valleys, and beyond. That's what we need. So eight years ago, in an election that the winner got 39%, um, we wouldn't have that if we had a thing called citizens veto for ranked choice voting. And so, Chris Kyer is going to come up and talk to us about ranked choice voting. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. My name is Chris Kerr. I'm the field director for the Committee for Ranked Choice Voting. Uh, we've been working over the last few years to implement a system of ranked choice voting for statewide elections. Really excited to be here talking today among so many great speakers about the work we're doing to save ranked choice voting in the state of Maine. Uh, in case you're wondering why I'm talking at a rally about, you know, for water rights and environmental protection about ranked choice, let me give you some context. What we've seen recently in Maine are legislators who have blatantly disregarded the will of the voters, whether it's the decisions we make on a citizen's initiative or the testimony that we give on legislation, our elected officials are ignoring our voices. This is continuing today as a committee looks to take away our rights to collect signatures at polling locations on election day, making it virtually impossible for a group like the Committee for Ranked Choice Voting to get something on the ballot. And really what it does is it only gives access to well-funded organizations to be able to get something on the ballot. The problem is when someone can get elected with 30% of the vote, they're only accountable to 30% of the voters. And if we want elected officials who listen to more people on issues like water rights, waste management, on environmental protection, then we need a system like ranked choice voting. In October of last year, 
our legislators decided to postpone ranked choice voting until 2021, essentially killing the bill. What they did when they made this decision is say that we are unwilling to work with the groups that proposed this bill, and we don't care what Maine people want. So this is why we've pursued a people's veto, to put the power back in the hands of the people. We need to deliver 61,123 valid signatures to the Secretary of State by February 2nd. In order to process these on time, we need to get these signatures collected by January 19th. We're getting close, and the goal is within reach, but with less than three weeks to go, we need help. Even if you can only get three, five, ten signatures, every signature counts. This is going to come down to the wire. This is the point where I was going to ask you to come back to our table and sign the petition or sign up to volunteer. But just a few minutes ago, we were told that we can't collect signatures here, that we can't hand out petitions here, that we can't sign, sign up volunteers here. So, that's right. If you're not mad, it's time to get mad. And if you are mad, it's time to take action. So like I said, we need your help. We have three weeks left. You can go to rcvmaine.com to sign up to collect signatures from your friends and family. We'll send you a petition packet and everything you need. We'll walk you through the process. But this is our opportunity to stand up for the voters' rights. And if we don't do it now, we may not have another chance. Thank you. If you're just joining us, these are some of the speakers at the January 3rd Rally for Unity at the State House in Augusta, sponsored by the Alliance for the Common Good. The MC was Jim Freeman. So our next speaker is Betsy Garrell, a longtime friend who's, who's been relentlessly working with others on the food sovereignty issues, and she's going to give us an update. I do want to say one thing, um, regretfully, Heather Repberg, who's been working with Betsy, for years and is wicked knowledgeable of all this, has a farm in Penobscot and due to the cold and some a couple animals are down and just dealing with the farm, um, which is typical for Maine and they're incredible. So she was unable to come today, but Betsy will, will fill in a little bit with that. Thank you. As I go around the country talking about our new food sovereignty law, I, I start out my story by saying that in 2009, the Maine Department of Agriculture chose the wrong two driveways to walk down. The first one was the Rettberg's driveway in Penobscot, Maine, Quills End Farm, and the second one was Craig Hickman's farm driveway in Winthrop, Maine. The dairy inspector said that due to rule changes, interior department rule changes, both of these farms had suddenly become milk distributors rather than milk producers. And under those laws, they had to be licensed and, and yes. The reaction to this was very different. Heather and Phil sat down with Food for Maine's Future, the organization that I'm the president of the board of, and we wrote the, and I always have to read this, the Local Food and Community Self-Governance Ordinance, which had said that because Maine is a home rule state, the uh, control of the food systems can devolve to the lowest governmental entity, which is the municipalities. 
which is a, a great way of saying that towns get to say what happens in face-to-face -face food transactions within their boundaries. They got, we, we got this passed in several towns down on the peninsula, and it has expanded. We now have the, the local food sovereignty ordinance in 20 towns and one city. Auburn just passed it a couple of months ago. Craig Hickman took a different approach to this. He and his husband, Yap, were running a bed and breakfast in a small farm in Winthrop. And he said, he got angry enough that he said, I'm going to run for the legislature. And he won. And he became chair of the, of the uh, Agriculture Committee. And through that, we started processing through the legislature um, the laws to give control of the food that you eat back to the people who eat it and the people who produce it. And after many years, so eight years now, um, la this last session we got the local food sovereignty law passed and the governor signed it. And it became, and it became the law of the state. And what that law says is that um, municipalities who have the local food sovereignty ordinance can control their own food systems. It does not protect municipalities who do not have the local food ordinance. So if your town doesn't have a local food sovereignty ordinance, see me. I will get you started down that path. After listening to everything that's been said today, I have to say that I have to use one of my favorite phrases. It's called muddy boots in the halls of power. And that is how we get things done. We do not have the money that the grocery lobbyists have, that the dairy lobbyists have, the people that went against us again and again and again as we tried to get these food sovereignty laws passed. We don't have their money. I'm sure I'm a registered lobbyist, and I'm sure that when they do, uh, you know, look up and see how much I make as a lobbyist, they just laugh because I make in an entire session what they probably make in a day. So there's no way that we're going to throw money at this. We need to have the muddy boots in the halls of power. And that's all of you guys that are here today with your muddy boots on because it's so freaking cold outside. These are the people that are going to make things change. The people's veto. I absolutely agree with you folks saying that this is our house and we can do what we want here. And we need to take back that power. And the way to do that is to show up. And I'm really pleased that all of you showed up today, and thank you so much. And we now have food sovereignty in the state of Maine, even though the USDA tried to kill it in the special session in October. We managed to save it. So even though we don't have meat and poultry, we still have all of the other pieces of the ordinance intact, and, and the people of Maine can feed themselves. And that is a victory. And it's. And it's because of people like you, and I just want to thank you very much. How many people here think that we should be giving subsidies to the corporations? Big, fat subsidies? Nobody. How come? Anyway, Bruce Gagnon is going to come and talk a little bit. We have this shipbuilder in Bath. That's a multi, multinational corporation with huge profits. They don't have to really... Years ago, New Hampshire, when they were building Seabrook, had construction work and progress tax on their fees. They could just 
if I'm going to build you a garage and it's going to be 50000 and I can spend 500000 doesn't matter. You just keep doing. Well, that's in a little bit what Bath Ironworks would like. Bruce, would you please come up? Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here. So have you all heard about this $60 million corporate welfare for General Dynamics, the fifth largest weapons corporation on the planet Earth? You've heard about it, right? Can the state of Maine afford to give this corporate welfare to General Dynamics? In 1997, General Dynamics came here to Augusta with its silver cup in hand and requested $200 million over 20 years, and they were given that. In 2013, General Dynamics came to the very poor city of Bath and asked them for $6.7 million more of corporate welfare and a small committee, I'm talking small, about six of us went door to door in the community, fought against this thing, and the city cut it in half, much to our surprise. So we saved the taxpayers of Bath about $3 million. But now, on top of all this, they're coming again. In addition, they're going to Connecticut, they're going to Rhode Island and poor-mouthing those states and saying they've got to have subsidies from those states, otherwise they can't afford to keep their uh, grotten uh, uh, submarine shipbuilding operation open there. It's ridiculous. So two Democrats from the Mid-Coast, Representative Jennifer DeChant and Senator Eloise Vitelli, are now sponsoring this $60 million corporate welfare. I always thought Democrats wanted to help the poor and small businesses, but they were anti-corporate subsidies. But I guess that's not the case in this new world that we're living in today. The federal taxpayers, you all, have already paid General Dynamics for a contract to build destroyers in Bath. And that contract pays the salaries of all the workers, the training of the workers, the materials they use, the supplies they need, and even a healthy profit. So it's all paid under the federal contract. So when they go to Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Maine, they're triple-dipping on top of that federal contract. And then Trump comes along, and Congress, with the help of Senator Susan Collins, and gives these corporations a tax cut reduction from 35% to 20%. So factor in that as well. And then we've learned that between 2009 and 2016, General Dynamics bought back $12.9 billion, that's with a B, $12.9 billion of their own stock, driving up the cost of stock, 
increasing the profits of their top executives in a dramatic way. But you only buy back $12.9 billion of your own stock when you have excess cash on hand. Excess cash that could have paid the workers more, could have donated to local uh, nonprofit organizations and communities where they build ships. General Dynamics Bath Ironworks is historically very chintzy in the Midcoast area. So if they've got money for stock buybacks, they sure as hell don't need more money from Augusta. So we've been trying to alert the people of the state. I understand there's two letters in the Portland Press Herald today. We've been trying to get people across the state to write letters and op-eds to their local papers. I hope you'll help with that. We're also trying to contact all of the legislators in Maine, let them know about your opposition. We hope you'll help with that as well. And then the Taxation Committee apparently will be the ones holding hearings sometime in January. They're going to try to fast-track this uh, during this special session. We've got to make sure we turn people out in big numbers for that Taxation Committee hearings that we don't know yet when they're going to happen. The last we tried to find the bill, it's not even been written yet, but we're told, don't worry, it's now under construction between Representative Jachant from Bath and uh, attorneys from Bath Ironworks. So clearly, uh, they're writing this bill that's going to give them $60 million in corporate welfare, and there's no other way to call it other than corporate welfare. So please help us ask the people of Maine, what other ways could $60 million be spent in this already strapped state of Maine. Thank you very much. So you got me to speak a little bit on the East-West Corridor, and then I'll do some closing remarks. I want to thank you all very much for your attention and paying, you know, being here, listening. Um, I think the common theme is a lot of sustainability, but it's also corporate control, and that's where we can take it back. East-West Corridor, if many of you know, is an industrial corridor from Canada to Canada, basically, coming from Eastport, uh, Calais, going across to Cobangore. Um, it was kind of blindsided to say it's going to be a highway. I don't think they ever intended to have a highway, <clears throat> but what they do is they want to use it to take our resources. Three years ago, <clears throat> or maybe six or seven years ago, somebody from the shipping industry talked to me about what they want to do is put a port in it called the Caneso Gorge, which is Milford, Nova, uh, Milford, Nova Scotia. It's, it's in, in World War II. It's the deepest water on the east coast of the United States. And it was used by the U.S. Navy in World War II, once again. So they want to have the highway go there. And there's three principal things, as far as I can see, that they want from us. One is gravel, and gravel will be used in Europe to make asphalt for roads. Europe has twice the population in a smaller geographic space than we, and we are abundant in certain resources. Water, <clears throat> gravel, and wood. The water, Nestle is already in Lincoln. We recently put, we're putting $35 million, 20 by the company, um, 
15 by the company, 20 by Susan Collins. Once again, that name comes up to refurbish the rail lines. We thought initially it was going to be so they could bring the bomb trains from North Dakota, the Bakken crude back, but it's not. That's pretty much economically shut down. So the trains are going to go through Lincoln, and then they'll be exporting water. Not, not Nestle. They're not going to be putting straws in the ground. There's big problems with the tanker trucks out in western Maine tearing up the roads. A tanker, a railroad tanker, can take a lot more water. Lincoln's aquifer is huge. It's giant compared to what it is in Freiburg and other areas around. So that they're already pumping in Lincoln. The other issue is probably very few people know about, but it's called torrefied wood. <clears throat> torrefied wood is a charcoal. It's a fancy word for charcoal, and it can be used with coal in Europe. Europe uses a ton of coal, more than we realize, and so dilution is a solution. They'll take export our trees, which is the other reason why we feel Janet Mills is taking the river from the Penobscots. Penobscot River is already clean enough for certain, for certain things, but now industry wants to come in and it'll be jobs, jobs, jobs in Medford, uh, in um, Millinocket, in that area to be producing this torrefied wood. The other thing is the grid, the electric grid. Um, we have Everett Simpson, Simpson up here who's been working tirelessly on that. They're trying to enhance the grid to then put in more wind towers. And the wind towers are mostly in isolated wind li uh, ridge lines. They need to clear cut to, do, to go to the grid to sell, to sell the power, put the power onto the grid. We already produce over 150% of our electricity which means we're exporting electricity. All the new wind towers will be for export. They're not going to benefit Maine. Most of the construction companies that build the wind towers are from out of state because we don't have the expertise. We don't have the, the bulk or the size of the construction companies. Once again, it's corporate takeover. The, the construction companies in Maine might have the bulldozer to clear the land. They might bring gravel, but they're not doing, they're not bringing in the cranes, and they're not bringing in the expertise and stuff to that. The wind towers all come from different parts of the world. They come in, mostly come to Mac Point. They get transported <clears throat> up <clears throat> into the ridge, into the remote areas. And it's even insidious enough that the pilots who, who lead, the, who lead the, the caravans of towers and blades are all from out of state. Even the drivers, they're coming from Washington State, Oklahoma, and Tennessee. They stay in a motel, a couple different motels in Searsport and they stay there for the whole summer while they're moving these parts. Again, nobody from Maine really benefits at all. So <clears throat> this is all stuff that we have to come to work, work against, work together and move forward on this. We can do it. I think I'm just gonna kind of slide into the closing remarks if we can. Is yeah. there a new proposal on the table to go ahead with it? Well, it's, it's, no, <clears throat> what they're doing with the East-West Corridor, it, it's not stopped. It was never stopped. They're incrementally piecing it together. They need the land, like they, they have, they're buying, they're buying land and they're going in. Here's the even worse part, and I don't mean to be doom and gloom. So <clears throat> the PUC controls electric rates in Maine and controls building and whatever else of the electricity. So if they'll go back and get an easement on your property, and a lot of these places there's an easement going across the back 40 or whatever, old wooden telephone poles a little right away. They're coming in and they're buying these easements. They're saying they're, it's a, mostly they're 100 foot wide. They want to expand it to 270 feet wide, 275 feet wide. That would be for high tension wires expanding the grid. So they'll give a farmer, say, they'll say, hey, we'll give you just round figures, $10,000 to expand our easement. Once that easement is in place, 
then, then FERC can come in and they have a moratorium on gas, frack gas in New Brunswick. Once they break that moratorium, and be sure they will, then they can come in and they can, the, the power companies that are buying the easements can then sell that easement or the right to pipeline companies for $100,000 and make more and more profit. Now we'll have pipelines going from Canada to Canada and you know, it's just, it's insidious. It's all these things are happening and, and we're kind of in disarray. One of the brilliance, I think, of the Trump administration is to take us out of our rhythm. Every day, every other day, there's something else happening. We're in total chaos. What do we do next? What do we do here? What do we do there? We have the power. Most of everything you've heard about today is connected, really closely connected around water and sustainability. And we can work together, but that's what we have to do. We have to be smart using our energy, and people's power can win. Once again, thank you so much for coming on this day. Appreciate it. That's all we have time for today, but you can view a video of the entire Rally for Unity on the WERU Facebook page. Just scroll down to January 3rd. We did have to edit it to make it fit this time slot today. There were several other speakers that you can view on that video. The annual rally is sponsored by the Alliance for the Common Good, and it's held at the State House as the legislature returns for the January session every year. You've been listening to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. Join us here every Tuesday at 4 o'clock on Community Radio WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! coming up next, followed by Jazz Alchemy, and then a new show with some hosts that I think you'll recognize. It's called Sabor Latino. Only here on your community radio station, WERU-FM.